Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Myself, Galen Stops from 360T. I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Chandler, the Chief Market Strategist at Bannockburn Global Forex. Mark, thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Pleasure to see you. Let's jump right in. So looking at the currency markets right now, we have worrying signs of a second wave emerging in parts of Europe. You could perhaps argue that uh, the US never really got over the first wave. Uh, We've got Brexit wrangling, no deal on the horizon. We've got the US election, which is shaping up to be pretty contentious. In your mind then, does this all just point to lots more volatility in the last quarter of the year? It's interesting, the volatility. I mean, the, uh, it does seem that you do have these events, fixed events, like I say, this coming week's EU summit, and when the, uh, maybe even the middle of November summit with the EU, what the UK does, that fixed date with the US election. Uh, though, like you say, it's not clear uh, that we know the results that night of the election or whether it's dragged on some more drama. I'm not sure that these are really the things that are driving the markets right now, though. I think that the key to the dollar, and that's, I think, regardless of who gets elected in November, what happens, and I think this affects sterling more than the euro-sterling cross. I think that the dollar is coming under pressure because, simply put, if I can sum this up quickly for you, it's something like this, that because the U.S. runs a current account and a large budget deficit, it needs to import world savings. And to do so, we need to offer an interest rate premium. And while the U.S. does offer an interest rate premium over Europe, Japan, which, as you know, something like $15.5 trillion of negative yielding bonds, that premium the U.S. offers has narrowed considerably. And even even a year out from now, we're looking at uh, early projections of about a 10% U.S. budget deficit, uh, much bigger than, say, continental Europe's, say the U.K.'s maybe 7%. Japan's maybe 7% next year, just like sort of penciling in these numbers. Nothing's really solid yet. But you still get the sense that the U.S. is going to be running a very large trade deficit, drives the current account deficit, very large budget deficit. And the Federal Reserve is promising to keep interest rates low. And even even with some backing up of our 10-year yield, we're talking about, say, 75 to 80 basis points. So I think the bigger picture, the dollar is going to be declining. And we get these occasional counter-trend bounces in the dollar like we got in September. But I think the underlying trend is still going to be to a lower U.S. dollar. And I think with these kind of events, these, the kind of volatility of the, that the events bring on is really a short-term phenomenon, which should give considered investors, medium-term investors, opportunities to get on with the trend at somewhat better levels. And so then we've seen various differing speeds of economic recovery from different countries around the world. Do you think that this kind of multi-tiered speed of recovery is going to open up big disparities in currency valuations at all? So I think you're right. For me, uh, it is interesting that uh, the recoveries are at different speeds, like they were after the uh, 07, 08 great financial crisis. I don't think that the speeds are yet the key determining factor. I think in some ways, I think that what COVID has done is it created a synchronized business cycle. First, we all got hit, whether it was late Q1, Q2 down hard, Q3 looks like a big snapback. And as Q3 wound down, say August and September, it looks like the economies, Europe, uh, US, Japan, Australia, all looks like uh, they slowed down. That is, they lost some economic momentum. 
So it seems to me that the uh, the real thing is that the real like underlying signal here is that the global economies, industrialized economies, are still very much in sync, and that becomes the driver. I think that down the road we're going to be able to distinguish between like the faster horses and the slower horses, but right now I think it's just everybody's in sync. Uh, you mentioned uh, interest rates before. Obviously, we got hit with this first wave of COVID. We saw massive fiscal stimulus. Rates are, are low or in some cases negative already. If we do get a second wave, does central banks have less room to maneuver now? Yeah, I think this is, a, uh, this is one of these like, uh, themes that have been coming up uh, for a while, really, that monetary policy is exhausted and uh, putting more of the burden then on fiscal policy. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's really the case. I, I think that a couple of things I point out. One is that when we think about the authority and the power of central banks, uh, in recent years, they've acquired more regulatory authority. And so there's been some more regulatory like forbearance, if you will, easing the regulatory burden on financial institutions. And there's more room they could go in that direction. The other thing is, I think we want to think about other measures uh, that central banks can take. And I think the ECB shows us that uh, people have been calling it this dual rate. So the ECB has a deposit rate, which should be the floor of interest rates, minus 50 basis points. But what they recently did is basically make loans to banks. Uh, if they meet certain lending targets, they can get that money from the ECB at minus 100 basis points. So that deposit rate is no longer the floor. I, I think we've seen like efforts, say, from, even from Turkey's national bank, the central bank, to find other means to change policy, to raise the funding costs of banks to short the currency, in effect, short of having to have a broad stroke, raising interest rates that would affect a broader swath of the economy. I generally think that there's much more scope for monetary policy. I think that the biggest obstacle is political will. But I think that considering that central bankers around the world have been saying if they do want fiscal policy to pick up more of the slack, that there's some problems that monetary policy can't fix. We don't yell at our electrician because he can't fix our toilet. And the same thing with like monetary policy. Monetary policy can't do everything. And so, for example, to help correct the uh, racial imbalances in employment in the U.S., for example, that might not be a tool for the Federal Reserve. That might be something that fiscal policy has to address. And so I do think that uh, there has been this uh, little bit of shift of focus, but I think it's more of a short-run focus that monetary policy is still one of the pillars that hold up the economies. Fiscal policy is the other. And I think that people are going to be reluctant when they really see the size of debts that we're going to be giving to our children and our grandchildren. I think that fiscal policy isn't uh, wide open either. It also has limitations. And again, the biggest limitations, I think, come from political will not from like economics or from economic logic or something like that. So one thing there's been a lot of talk about lately is the K-shaped recovery in which there are divergent fortunes of the haves and have-nots of economic society. Is that what you're seeing? And also, if there is a K-shaped recovery, how does that influence your thinking about currency valuations? I do play around with the idea of this K-shape partly because I think that the disparity of income and wealth has emerged as a very important political and social problem or challenge, not just in the United States, Western Europe, it's in China, it's in Japan, it's in successful Northern European countries as well. I, I think this is one of, the, one of the big challenges. I put this alongside, uh, say, global warming or climate change as the two big challenges that we have. 
and I'm concerned about it. But when I think about the foreign exchange market, this is really why I, I love foreign exchange. $6.6 trillion a day average daily turnover. That means in about a week, the foreign exchange market sees enough turnover to cover world trade for a year. What drives the foreign exchange market is not going to be this K-shaped. That can help influence the strength of a society, so the underlying strength uh, and stability of a country. But I don't think it really drives the foreign exchange market. There's a popular book right now, uh, Trade Wars or Class Wars, and I'm a bit critical of that because the book really says that the reason the U.S. runs a large trade deficit is because China and Germany are under-consuming. And if they would consume more, they would be able to buy more of their own product. They wouldn't export it. The U.S. would not be forced to buy it and live beyond our means and run these deficits, which contributes them to this K-shape in all countries. I think that the fate of America, the fate of countries, for the most part, especially large countries like the U.S., are in our own hands. I don't think that China or Germany's surplus helps the world necessarily. But I don't think that it is responsible for why Spain or Italy have budget deficits why the U.S. has a budget deficit. And so I do think that within a country, though, I think that the disparity of wealth and income is a source of political tension. And uh, we're talking at the beginning about volatility, and I think it's a source of volatility within countries. For major industrialized countries, I think there's still sufficient political stability, despite this divergence of wealth and income, that lets investors look past this divergence and really focus on the big macro picture. You mentioned China a couple of times there. I wanted to ask you some questions about what you see going on, particularly with their currency. Now, I saw some news recently that the PBOC uh, abolished the reserve requirement on banks for forward FX transactions. Is this a significant piece of news that's worth paying attention to? Maybe put it this way. In America, one of many of our conceits is that uh, we're the great experiment. Can you have a representative form of government over a large territory? And 250 odd years later, we say we can. Then people thought that Europe was a great experiment. Can you have monetary union without fiscal union? And maybe the jury is still out on that, but I suspect it will be here for a while. But the great experiment of the last 20 or 30 years, 40 years, I think, has been the rise of China and the uh, incredible pace of industrialization. You know, China's experienced about an eightfold increase in GDP per capita in our lifetimes. It's an incredible pace. And I think that they wrestle as well with uh, the modern pressures of capitalism and of markets, which create strains and pressures that aren't completely accountable or can't be easily diagnosed by bureaucrats. And the market is a great aggregator of information. And of course, it has excesses, as we see with bubbles in the financial markets from time to time. China, I think, is wrestling with this. And I think that what China happened is that in the third quarter this year, Chinese currency appreciated by the most in about a dozen years. And then they went on holiday, the Golden Week holiday from the end of uh, September to the first week in October. And the offshore RMB strengthened about three quarters of a percent. And then last Friday, the RMB, the mainland currency, strengthened by almost one and a half percent, the most since it began floating in 2005. And so what the Chinese officials did, the PBOC did, was they relied on a, I shouldn't say it's a trick, but they relied on a, on a lever that will help make it easier for banks more willing to let their own people, but also foreigners, sell RMB. 
And the reason why it's important that foreigners have this is that one of the things that China has moved towards and has succeeded in doing is becoming more integrated in the global capital markets. So a lot of benchmarks have begun including Chinese equities, but also Chinese bonds. And we have seen, uh, the data shows, inflows by foreign investors into stocks and bonds in China. And they need, oftentimes, our asset managers want to be able to hedge the currency risk. This will help make it more easier to do, make it cheaper and more efficient to do onshore rather than offshore. When I understand what China did, I'd say that combining this move about abolishing the reserves on forwards, as well as how they set the reference rate for the dollar earlier today on Monday, I'd say that China is just sending a signal, a moderate signal. It's not a sign of a big sell-off. I think that they're just giving the market, just be cautious, be careful here. We're reaching levels, which we haven't seen in a long time. It's been a one-way market. It's been very dramatic. We need businesses to be able to adjust to it. And we don't want the RMB to be running away, though we do embrace, I think, the Chinese would say, combined with, here's the story, you know, we're talking about interest rates. The U.S. say we have uh, 75, 80 basis points in our tenure. China offers more than 300 basis points. They have one of the only economies in the G20 that looks like it's going to expand this year. And I know we could, we got to take some Chinese data with a grain of salt, but it does look like China's having a fairly strong recovery that's lasting, perhaps more robust than we are seeing in other countries. And so I think that this makes Chinese markets more attractive for foreign investors. And China is dealing with its own debt problems. And so uh, having foreigners absorb some of that risk by buying some of the fixed income or buying shares in the equity market, I think it works in China's favor. So I'd say, yes, pay attention to what China did, but don't think that this is going to reverse the RMB, that maybe we are due for some consolidation. Like we've seen the euro consolidate. You know, on September 1st, the euro was trading 120. We got down to about uh, 117 or so. It's consolidating, moving broadly sideways. And I think that that works on a lot of interests for businesses, for the banks, and for policymakers. And I think the same thing is broadly true for China. They allowed some appreciation. And now I think they want a little bit of more stability in the market. So we opened this discussion. I mentioned the big headline news events, which could potentially move markets. I'd be curious to wrap us up. Are there any key data points in Q4 that you're going to be looking at and paying particular attention to? You know, there's, there's a lot of information out there. You can compare you know, new jobless numbers in the US compared to you know, uh, how many jobs have been created, etc. Are there any key data points that you're, you're going to be watching out for that could give us an indication of where things are going? Well, I think that uh, besides like, the big things like the, the Brexit, the uh, U.S. election, I think that the December ECB meeting is going to be very important. I think that the doves came out in force in uh, recent days in op-ed pieces and in interviews, pressing the case that the inflation is too low, growth is too weak. And then you get this, as you say, this uh, new surge in the, uh, of the pandemic. So I, a lot of people are focusing on the possibility that the ECB expands and extends its pandemic emergency purchase program where they're buying bonds. I think that there is probably scope for another interest rate cut as well. And a lot of people aren't talking about that yet. But I think that with this dual rate system we talked about, it leaves them room to be able to cut rates a little bit. I, I'm looking also at like how Q4 is shaping up. And I think we'll get some uh, data points because it's really a question of how dramatic of a slowdown after we get this huge expansion in Q3. And in about a week's time, we'll get the first look at China's GDP. It's really kind of a bit of a miracle how they can do this. And within a couple of weeks at the end of the quarter, 
uh, they're able to get an assessment of GDP, but it takes the U.S. a couple more months to get even the first estimate, which we continue to revise for many years. So uh, I think Q4 is going to be important because that'll be like the key incentive or driver for how policy responds in uh, early in uh, you know Q1 of next year, whether we get more fiscal stimulus, more monetary stimulus. I'll be looking at also the lame duck session in the U.S. That is the after the U.S. election, there's a period before the uh, new people take office, and what Congress can do in that short, like two months span. Maybe some fiscal stimulus. Maybe. All right. That's everything that I wanted to ask you today, Mark. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck to everybody. Thank you for listening to the 360T podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.